This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. What is up, Bad Movie Lovers? I am your host, Nick Scheist, and we're coming off of July that was the most listened to month of this show so far. So once again, thank you to everybody who helped make that happen. I've got a great show for you lined up today as I was joined by Movie Miss and Drive-In Dave of the Let's Talk Turkeys podcast. And I was still a little bit under the weather for this one, so you're going to hear that in my voice. So apologies for my nasally tones in advance. While there was a lot of balls in the bingo cage, so to speak, the one that came down the chute was none other than a sequel to a beloved horror film from the 80s. We're talking about 16 years down the line, six years in the making, bunch of writers, bunch of rewrites. Join us as we sink our teeth into an American werewolf in Paris. This to me felt like a poor parody of American Werewolf in London. But th- that's why I think it wasn't well received, because there was the expectation. My first instinct was, oh, he's just hallucinating. It was almost like a Looney Tunes presents a werewolf movie. I just love werewolves and give them to me in any way, I'll eat them up. You don't want to see a younger, hotter Bella Lugosi? Big, hairy guys with horrible comb-overs. No, those are not werewolves, sir. This is a werewolf. I'm very superficial like that, you know? I I want pretty werewolves. It's so nice to see her in this. And then I'm like, oh yeah, she's gonna get murdered here pretty soon by this werewolf. Okay, what is so scary about these French guys? The last thing you want is werewolves with excellent cardio. I'm not a bro, nor have I ever been a bro. I'm talking about getting laid and getting points, and it's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what do you know about Wolfie style? The guy thinks he's talking to his penis. Five dollars short of being able to see a werewolf penis. Oh, 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 oh. Uh. oh. Movie Miss, Driving Dave, thank you so much for being with me on this, what is it, Wednesday morning now? I actually kind of like the days blend together, so I'm, I'm <laughs> going to take your word on it. <laughs> I feel you because yesterday was a, it was a long, stressful day. I couldn't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday by the time I got home. So we'll just call it Wednesday and we'll get the ball rolling. But thank you both so much for being here. You've got a show. Let's talk turkeys. And why don't you just take a moment to introduce yourselves and tell me and my audience a little bit about your show, because I know you've been doing it for a while at this point. Yes. Thank you, Nick, so much for having us. Um, I'm Movie Miss, host of Let's Talk Turkeys. It was the brainchild about three seasons ago, three years ago now, uh, with my sister. Uh, She went by Nikki Flicks. And we just talked bad movies all the time and laughed. And we thought, why aren't we doing this as a podcast? So we turned it into one. And then life got the better of her. She had to move on to other things. 
enter my good friend Dave here, Drive-In Dave, into season three as my regular co-host. And we basically, like I said, talk bad movies. So we laugh, laugh, laugh as much as we can. Because <laughs> some of these ones that are out there, these movies are awful, a lot of them. Uh, yeah, um, that's she pretty much brought me in after I did a couple of you know guest shots on like a, the Sony Godzilla because I was the only person she knew that actually liked that movie. <laughs> so, oh, the, 19, the 1998 movie, yeah, Roland Emmerich Godzilla. Wow. Yeah, it, it's I, I I always tell everyone it's just a great popcorn flick, and if you if you take Godzilla out of the title, it's a fun movie to watch. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but uh, she brought you know so she brought me in, and then I just kind of became I became the comic relief. She, she was the slave driver. And then I'm just a comic <laughs> relief. <laughs> well, because our format is very unlike your show, which I'm so happy to be on this show with, with the organic flow of it, because we're very structured. We talk about the movie um, off the top, all the specifics, director, cast, and so forth. And then we go through a full plot walkthrough of every movie and we talk about everything and we pick it apart. So I am a little more critical, but I think that's where some of the fun comes from. Yeah, and since since you brought it to uh, since you brought it to the table, the show that or the movie that you picked for this show, technically I picked it from a list that you gave me, uh, but that is an American Werewolf in Paris. So, do you have a reason why this made it onto your short list for this show? Yes, because it was on the list for my show. <laughs> because because we try to talk movies that are turkeys and the way we do the criteria is if it has a poor rotten tomato score or if i hate it if it's a turkey to me or if dave hates it so this one has a poor rotten tomato score really bad i didn't look it up i should have um but that's why it was on my list because i actually love this movie the way that dave looks at godzilla it's it's a good popcorn flick it doesn't the CG doesn't quite hold up, and I'm sure we'll get to it. But other than that, I love this movie. It is an interesting popcorn type of movie. And it also like bears the burden of being the sequel to a very famous and well-received horror film. But Dave, I wanted to ask you also, I mean, you didn't pick this and you did watch it, though. So if you had to give sort of a summary to the audience of why it's generally received as a bad movie what would you say is that summary um I, i'm gonna be kind uh and i'll just <laughs> say this that this to me felt like a poor parody of american werewolf in london it it, it felt like um uh, like i me and my my girlfriend tend to watch a lot of bad movies on tubi and i'm sure you know what i'm talking about like those yeah. horrible like you know polina brothers style movies and stuff and this felt like something they would have put out because it just, it, 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 and I could see the shock on her face, and she was just like horrified by my by my reaction. But that's what it felt like to me. Is like, I like the actors going into this. Like, I'm a, I'm a fan of Tom Everett Scott. I love his work. Um, it just even like his acting didn't feel that great. Like he was kind of phoning it in, and a lot of stuff just fell flat to me. And it just didn't work on so many levels. And I wanted to like it. I really, really did. <laughs> Miss, it looks like you have a rebuttal. I will allow you the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> no, I 100% actually see where he's coming from because it's it, it, it tries to walk that line of horror comedy. If you're comparing it to the original, clearly it's not going to 
be in the ballpark. No way. I mean, we're talking award-winning, groundbreaking film, the first one. So I get where he's coming from. I'm not going to be too hard on him. <laughs> and I Not think, even well, in the ballpark. <laughs> like, like, like not even the ballpark. This movie didn't even get out of bed to go to the ballpark. <laughs> it watched the game on TV, but hey, you know, sometimes that's better than going to the game. Uh, but in defense of Tom Everett Scott, this is what his second film. He's 24, 25 when he's making this. They're on location in Paris uh, and in Luxembourg for a lot of this as well. So this is all this is all like placed at his feet after that thing you do, which was probably more successful than you would imagine. And he sort of becomes like a star in the making because of it. And I think you see with the way that this movie is at least set up on paper and how it's written for his character, this is set up to sort of make him the lead and push him as a leading man. And I'm watching it like, why is Julie Delpy not the lead in this movie like she's clearly the best actor in the film she has the most interesting story and so to center it around him and his bros on this like weird daredevil journey to europe it just it it, it puts an unfair burden of telling the story i think on his shoulders so two things a i read an article an interview with julie delpy she took this movie because her rent was due and she didn't have any other big offers Good for her. Okay. I said, I said, hey, I hope she got paid well for this. That was one <laughs> thing I put in my notes because she she delivered when like a lot of other people didn't in the film. Right. She did not phone it in. And then two, you know, darn well that Tom Everett Scott and Vince and Phil, the, the three main guys were partying their asses off when they were not shooting. I mean, come on. <laughs> Yeah, it felt it felt very broy in that it's yeah. like, oh, this is like almost uh, like American Pie or um, Can't Hardly Wait. Like some of the teen comedies that had come out uh, in the 90s that had centered around like that style of humor and even how it's sort of spoon fed to us in the beginning that they are there to like score points for doing daredevil stuff or if they hook up with girls they're like keeping score on all this so it's a very adolescent style of humor and i mean it had been probably 20 years since i had seen this movie but i still had fond memories of it and i saw it before i ever saw american werewolf in london so to me like this was my first exposure to it so I'm curious for you, like when was the most recent time you had seen it uh, before watching it to prep for this? So I saw it when it first came out in theaters because I'm that old. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had grown up. And let me also say, I forgot to mention this. Um, I'm a horror fanatic. That's my favorite genre. And my favorite subgenre is werewolf movies, mm. monster movies but more specifically werewolf movies. So I knew all about American Wolf in London, had seen it numerous times. It didn't taint my viewing experience when I went to see this because I, for some reason, just knew to not associate it, not connect it. Um, even though there had been, I heard a first draft, uh, several drafts where they wanted to make Julie Delpy's character, David Naughton's character's daughter, mm -hmm. because the man in this movie is her stepfather, they say. But they rewrote that out of it. So she wasn't related in that way. So the movies would have been more connected. But in my mind, I didn't care. And I fell in love with this immediately because it just because it was a werewolf movie. 
I think it had nothing to do with this movie's fantastic. I just love werewolves and give them to me in any way. I'll eat them up. But but was this a werewolf movie? Because I, I, I kept waiting for actual werewolves to show up and I just saw like big hairy guys with horrible comb overs. <laughs> okay. Now we're not going to have a discussion about Twilight right now. Okay. <laughs> I would prefer those werewolves. <laughs> no, those are not werewolves, sir. This is a werewolf. <laughs> uh. Well, speaking of like the actual physical werewolf part of it, you had mentioned sort of like at the outset that the CGI does not hold up well in this. And I I think it's, you know, it's a little bit unfortunate that it is so reliant on the CGI because there is scenes where they're using like traditional makeup effects and they're sort of working around that that work really well and that look very very creepy so i mean yes this is 1997 but do you know if there was like some reason that the shift was made to focus on cgi werewolves i know like doing full hard light transformations is not easy when you're working with uh like prosthetics and makeup and especially doing hair effects uh you have to shoot everything like very close up um but do you have any insight as to like why that decision was made? So the only thing that I could really find, and um, my internet had been down for a few days recently, and luckily I have this on physical media. I have a DVD, mm-hmm. so I watched it that way to prep. But unfortunately on that disc, there's no special features, no behind the scenes, anything. So I had to do my research online this morning. And the only thing I could really find was that the animatronics and the practical effects that they did go with weren't were malfunctioning. Mm. Some of the stuff didn't look as good as they'd hoped. And you have to remember, in 97, we had Relic, Event Horizon, Anaconda, Wishmaster, all these movies that required, and this was groundbreaking. They were really making strides in special effects. And I remember reading um, one of the men, not Screaming Mad George, who did the practical effects, but the people who did the the video uh, CGI on this, they were working tirelessly. Budget went into this because they made sure when he jumps out of that fountain and he's shaking his hair from being wet, that was hours and hours and hours of putting one hair at a time and making sure they observed wet lions, wet dogs. I mean, it's a shame that it doesn't hold up because they they tirelessly tried to make this groundbreaking for the time and make it great. Yeah. And reading a little bit about sort of like the script development and how much thought and effort they put into designing the the werewolf itself. Uh, You know, like you said, they studied a lot of animal structure. They had like hand drawn the skeletal structure for the werewolves at this point so that they would have like a body that at least for the film adhered to like the physics that they had set aside for it. So this isn't something that was done uh, with no care, right? This is something that was done with intent that uh, was given time, given resources to make. And I think if you look back to a lot of, movies in the earlier days of cg you can point to it and say that it doesn't hold up that well and so i don't think that this movie like is an anomaly in that way and i don't think it's necessarily even like the biggest detriment to the film 
it's more, I think, a stylistic choice in how so many scenes are presented with the the CGI being like the crown jewel of the scene rather than using the CGI to sort of heighten certain moments where you need it or to use it for the one big transformation scene and then sort of rely on animatronics, puppetry, makeup in the other close-ups where you can. Uh, it just seemed like it, because it was such a big deal that it became a central focus. But I mean, Dave, you had mentioned that these are hairy guys with comb overs. So obviously the werewolf design was not something that appealed to you. No, but but then I'm I'm very like picky with my werewolves. Like, you know, it's like, okay, these are these are fantasy creatures. These, these don't exist. So I, I understand when people try to ground it into reality to make them look like how would the transformation uh, actually look in real life and how would the werewolf, you know, look if, if it was a real creature. And that's cool, but it very rarely to me ever pans out. Like the only time I've ever enjoyed that was uh, the Wolfman, like the classic Wolfman or even the, what some people consider terrible one with Benicio del Toro. Um, I, I like that look that, that to me worked uh, with the small snout and everything. This one, it felt like they were combining the two different designs and the small snout. It, it just looked like basically, like I said, like a hairy guy, like it, it just, it didn't give me the werewolf effect that I was looking for. So that that hurt it for me that the CGI itself wasn't like you guys said, it's not terrible for that time. Like it, I could see where it was good, um, but just the design. You just didn't really like how they out. looked. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm very superficial like that. You know, I, I want pretty werewolves. If it's an ugly werewolf, I'm not going to buy it a drink. I'm not going to take it out. It's like, no, I'm going to go find the cute werewolf now. But now I'm curious, what kind of werewolf is the werewolf that you like the design of? Practical um, or CGI or otherwise? To me, one of the coolest werewolves I've ever seen was uh, Bad Moon. I, I thought that werewolf just looked amazing. But that's all practical effects. But yeah, yeah. Uh, and you I can do you. that with digital. So, I mean, yeah, the faces of the werewolves are a little like, I don't know, elvish, sort of goblin-like. I mean, so had they gone with a more like traditional sort of uh, canine head on the werewolf, I think that maybe eases some of your discomfort with the way that they look because it is caught like you said between the sort of traditional humanoid werewolf and like a fully fledged unreal werewolf that we haven't actually like seen at this point so it is breaking ground in a new way for werewolf films and i mean that's a good thing because it obviously led to stuff that we saw in like underworld series, right? Where like those werewolves are like fully actualized, full scale, large wolves, but also man-like wolves. So you had brought up Twilight earlier where they just basically become a giant wolf, which is a different way to tell it, but it's way easier on the CGI. It's like, we don't have to design, <laughs> we don't have to design a werewolf. We just have to design a big dog, right? Exactly. And, and I, I applaud, like, I love it when you a filmmaker will take a risk and try something different. I mean, like, okay, we give a lot of crap to Twilight because it's a terrible, terrible franchise. But I love the fact that Stephanie Meyer took a chance and tried to do something different with a, you know, with things that have been done like a million times before, before instead of just saying like, well, here's Bella Lugosi. We're going to make him younger and hotter now. It's like, no, you, you tried a totally different take on it, which is fun. 
It just did not appeal to anyone over the age of 13. You don't want to see a younger, hotter Bella Lugosi? Uh, no, um, I, I don't, I don't need to do. question my sexuality. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I want to get, I want to take a moment to, to watch the trailer here and see, we always go back and we look at the trailer and we try to understand what this movie was being billed as, because at least to the best of my understanding, you know, John Landis was involved in uh, a draft for this movie. So you would think that that would be the leading candidate. And you had mentioned that Julie Delpy's character was connected to the character from uh, the first film. And so there, there was at least at some point momentum to make this a direct sequel to an American werewolf in London. And at some point, for some reason, that sort of just broke down and it became uh, a sequel almost in name alone. So I, yeah. I want I always want to go back in time and take a look time capsule wise at what the trailer was trying to tell us, because even the title is only different by one word. So they obviously want the same audience to come back and take a look at it. But this movie came 16 years after the original. So if you're trying to appeal to the fans of the first film, that's going to be really difficult to do because yeah. if you watch this when you were in your formative years, I mean, you're you go from 20 to 36, you'll probably still like it if it is a direct sequel, but if it's not, then you end up with a movie that I think disappoints a lot of the fans from the original film and then just sort of leaves you holding the bag for teenagers that are coming into their formative years and haven't really seen the original like me at that point so but th that's why i think it wasn't well received yeah because there was the expectation expectations are a powerful thing as i talk to my friend sean about on a regular basis try to leave those at the door can you see this okay yes uh, yes all right before we move on to the trailer it's time to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor this episode is brought to you by wolfsbane all natural deodorant whether you're running carefree through the streets of Paris, just looking to score and impress your bros, or running for your life from a pack of cycling werewolves, you always want to be your freshest. That's why Wolfsbane All-Natural Deodorant is made by hand with only the finest clove oil, bay leaf oil, frankincense, sodium bicarbonate, and kawakawa. It contains no aluminum, no parabens, no dyes, and no artificial scents of any kind. Plus, it's especially formulated to work with your body's chemistry to neutralize those pesky pheromones that you probably don't even notice. Trust me, when you're in a pinch and trying to get a lichen off your trail, Wolfsbane increases your odds of avoiding detection by up to 81%, and that's 97% more than their competitors. So the next time you're looking to get your claws on a new deodorant, think practical, think tactical, think Wolfsbane all natural. The percentages listed do not accurately reflect the likelihood of surviving a werewolf attack. If you or someone you know should be attacked by a werewolf, please seek medical attention immediately. And now, back to the show. I'm excited. I've never seen the trailer. I probably have. Ah, Marlon Brando. Hollywood Pictures. I know. I was so surprised to, to see that. Andy McDermott is looking for a little danger. 
Even the voiceover sounds like a comedy. Tonight. Yeah. And this madness, you're gonna get yourself killed. There's nothing more dangerous than falling for the wrong girl. No, don't. Got the music from the movie, the score. That's awesome. I appreciate that. She's obviously whack. Kind of girl jumps off the Eiffel Tower has issues, man. Major issues. <laughs> you mustn't get involved. It's much too dangerous, believe me. You must go before it's too late. I was attacked by this big wild dog. You were bitten. You're already changing. It was not a dog. It was a werewolf. <laughs> and now you have become one too. <laughs> not a wolf. An American werewolf in Paris. Okay, so that wow. that at least didn't try to hide the fact that it was sort of like a zany buddy comedy energy that there was getting brought to it. They made it look like pure horror movie, though, in the sense that they they really used that shot from the opening of the film when you're watching the film and cut it up and spread it out over three different little spots to make it look like it was involved with him somehow when she's killing her father in the beginning and mm. like really tried to get the horror element to hit home, which works for me. I'm a horror fan. I'm, I see that. And I'm like, take my money now. Give me a horror movie. Great. Yeah. I mean, it, it leads in with that. Like the movie starts and the guy's running out of, I don't know, the laboratory or wherever he's running from. He's wearing a doctor's white coat. So I assume he's working in a hospital or something like that. And he's getting chased in the streets and, you know, they're withholding the werewolf at that point. So, you know, kind of classic horror techniques where we're not going to show you the thing that's scary just yet. Just the fact that somebody is scared of it. And I think it's happening in the rain, too. So it's like a lot of sort of like gothic setup to this. And then it's juxtaposed with this concert that's going on in the background. Uh, and I couldn't wrap my head around why other than like it it was nice to have the music it's the they're they're in front of the concert hall when he gets out of the mm -hmm. sewer drain and so it's it's the chance i thought to use that awesome sound the music the score the singing with to me in a horror movie that's effective when you ramp up like the exorcist does it as well they ramp up the tension with this omen omen is a good example Mm. with that haunting music behind the scary imagery. And I think that's what they were going for. They were like, we're going to open this film with a pow right to your face. This is what you're in for. And then it immediately transitions to the idiots on the train talking about getting laid and getting points. And it's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> it's a very hard tonal shift. Yeah. 
it, it, yeah, it, it felt like it was it was a blend, like I said, of like a, a buddy comedy and then a horror movie. And it just it felt like the blend didn't quite quite work. And I, I felt that in a couple other places, like you were talking about the score. And I, I like the original score from from the movie was really cool. But then they started throwing in this like, you know, 90s music that it just did not work. I mean, I kept waiting for Creed to start playing. And I was like, OK, if, if you if I hear Creed, I'm turning this off right now. I'm not dealing with that. <laughs> Sir, this soundtrack slaps. We've got Smash Mouth, Bush, Better Than Ezra, Cake. It's got, it's all there. The 90s hits are there, bro. Come on. Uh, did you just go into like pitch man mode right there? Like, <laughs> totally. You know, now this is what I call crappy music 98. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's a soundtrack that is good, but doesn't necessarily fit a horror film. And I mean, yeah, because it's like I enjoy it in a vacuum where if like I had just thrown the soundtrack on, I'd be happy. And so from like a studio perspective, you want big soundtrack hits so you can sell the soundtrack. So you want this kind of stuff that's popular during the time I had. I owned it. There you go. So not ashamed. Yeah. If you're going to sell CDs, you need to have artists that people want to buy on those CDs. But it does sort of come at the cost of the moments that should really dive into it being uh, a more horror oriented film. And like you said, right after that intro, you set it up to what would be a traditional horror opening. You're even using uh, concert music, classical concert music at, at, in the background of this. So it's like you have the horror setup and then it's a very, very hard shift into bro comedy, which I mean, it, it, it sort of looked like some of the foundation that maybe went into like early drafts for the script for Hostel, right? Like the idea that we're just going to like take these bros, put them in a place and just like we're going to have fun watching them be bros up until the point where the shit hits the fan and they all kind of get scared and we get scared with them. That doesn't exactly happen in this movie. It's like shit hits the fan, but then the bros just keep broing basically the whole way. (laughs) (laughs) And even uh, even death doesn't stop them from broing because he comes back and so I'm going to ask you this because as soon as he's bit and begins his transformation, Julie is in there with a, a glass of blended hearts and she's trying to explain what has happened to him at this point and explaining that hallucinations are going to be common during the process. And then her ghost mom is there, but also he's in the process of hallucinating very heavily several times in this scene where we see it in the trailer where she takes her shirt off and she's a werewolf. Um, So when his buddy all of a sudden is back, my first instinct was, oh, he's just hallucinating because of his transformation. But then it doesn't seem to be the case. It's almost like he's there physically with him. So, Nick, let me break it down for you. (laughs) Please. No, I've seen this movie a hundred times and I asked myself the same question the first 15 times. Um, 
Oh, also, I wanted to mention, I'm not a bro, nor have I ever been a bro, but I did find the bro humor funny. It was funny to me. But anyway, so about the, the visions and the hallucinations and all that, I love Undead Brad. Him and, and Undead Amy are like, and especially when they're feuding, are like my favorite part of this movie. And Undead Brad is clearly there because when he eliminates the werewolf that bit him later in the film, he says, adios, and off he goes. So one would assume undead mother of Julie is really there. Everybody can see her because she's there, which is weird because undead Brad, nobody else can see. But they see the mother. And then at the end, when Julie ends up getting the, spoiler alert, um, blood transfusion, which frees her from being a werewolf, I would assume that mother also goes to, you know, the netherworld. She's, she's gone. So, yeah, that's my hot take on that. <laughs> So are they ghosts that are only visible through like werewolf vision? Do they have like a particular spectrum of vision that only they can see? <laughs> I think it's because it's they're tied to them because of the killing and the biting and whatnot. But undead Brad was not killed by his buddy. He was killed by uh, the the other dude. The, the... One of one of Claude's friends. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. I know. It, it's okay. a little fuzzy, but I just assume because it's they're all involved in what's happening. They've all been bit, you know. Keep no, it in the family. See, that, <laughs> see, that's something I did. I actually enjoyed in the movie because I remember that from the original where he he was able to see his friend uh, that had died. And like that, that was like the comedic relief was like, you know, like when they're in the porno theater and like he's talking to his dead friend. Like, I, I love that. And I actually like that this movie kind of like expanded on that mythology a little bit, saying like, okay, all werewolves can see basically these dead victims. Uh, and then like the whole like, oh, they'll disappear once they, you know, the, the werewolf that killed them has died. That to me was, and at least that's how I took it. Uh, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. I'm sure Movie Miss will point it out because she takes pleasure in that. So please, please take the <laughs> rebuttal. <laughs> No, um, what I was going to jump in and say, because you're making a really good point, is that this movie amped it up. You get double what I think was comedy beats, because the first one's not super hilarious. Um, this one doubles the undead people, the undead friends. And when they're feuding, I oh, my God, I love that. It doubles the it well quadruples the amount of wolves that we get. It amped up the action. This movie is only like an hour, 40 minutes yeah. and it whizzes by, like it goes so fast because, and I watched it again last night. There's not a, a scene in this movie that isn't relevant to the plot. Like it moves. I am so this so movie happy. to me amped it up. I am so happy that you use the word whiz because that is just, I can't come up with a better word than that. So thank you for, for throwing that out there. <laughs> you're you're right though because there i look down and I, I tend to do this often when i get the chance to watch something at home and when i notice it i pause it and i'm like okay we're 40 minutes in and now he's a werewolf and this movie is an hour and 35 minutes or something so like we got to get on this horse and go because the the end is coming so we have to be very efficient with how we utilize our time the rest of the way but i'm really glad you brought up undead amy and undead brad as like their own thing it's a, a way different tone than the rest of the movie has already put out but it's uh reminded me i think of i want to say idle hands 
where you do have like the comic relief from these dead characters. And I had completely forgotten that Julie Bowen was in this film. And I was like, oh, my God, it's so nice to see her in this. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, she's going to get murdered here pretty soon by this werewolf does happen. But her and Brad sort of as not necessarily angel devil, but sort of flanking him on both sides as these two reminders of like what has happened to him, but also doing it in a way where they're poking fun at each other. They're sort of like poking fun at him for what had happened. They're not necessarily like lamenting the situation as much as they are sort of like guilt tripping him about it. And that scene where, uh, Amy Julie Bowen is she's trying to like whistle to signal the other werewolves I think to let him know where uh <laughs> why can I not think of the main character's name what is it Andy Andy thank you okay so I knew it and I thought I was wrong uh so she, there, she's whistling to try to signal the other werewolves Claude and his group uh where Andy is and like this blood shooting out of her cheek when she first tries it so she has to plug that up and she does it again, then her eyeball pops out. Um, so like all of, vision, I love that. Yeah, and all of that is done with practical effects. And I think that scene it captures like the gore elements you would want, but also sort of the tone of humor that you were going for. And it sort of encapsulates really for me what the movie like could be at its best. Like if you really just boiled it down to like a horror comedy and wanted to focus on the things that were the funniest like this is a good place to start and even having more of her and brad throughout the whole film probably would have been a uh, positive for the film overall you just would have had to cut back in some other areas see i love the comedy with with undead brad when he's talking to the fish at the restaurant mm -hmm. and everyone thinks he's talking to the fish and i saw them pull you out of the canal <laughs> and everyone's like what and he's in the bathroom taking a whiz and everyone's like the guy thinks he's talking to his penis because he's talking to Brad while he's looking down. Like all that weird humor really appealed to me. I was cackling the whole time. I'm like, this movie's hilarious. Clearly I'm in the minority. <laughs> I, I mean, I thought it was funny. I, I did enjoy the comedy of the movie. I just, it, to me, what didn't work was it felt like two and sometimes maybe even three different movies that just didn't blend well together it's like i always tell people when they ask me my opinion on uh the english patients i'm like well aside from the fact that it was too damn long uh it was two different movies and you didn't need you could have just made one movie out of each story and i felt like that was this as you could have had the buddy you know the bro comedy that would have been hilarious i would have watched that you could have had the werewolf horror movie i would have watched that putting them together it just it didn't work for me on uh, in certain spaces because like yeah like as as shit started to hit the fan you expected things to become more serious and then what are they doing oh they're digging through the trash looking for the note uh, and then you know you got the old woman throwing the money and then they're fighting over the money and it's like what the hell am I watching here like where where, where that is wasn't long enough that you know, that scene needed to be longer because that was funny to me and the good use of a Smash Mouth song I thought. Uh, well, there's no such thing as a good good use of a smash mouth <laughs> song. So, uh, <laughs> it was Dave. Was there anything that you did like about the movie? Um, I, there we go. 
It's hilarious because it does sound like I hated this movie so much. And it, I didn't hate it. It just like it was not at the top of my list of werewolf movies. Um, I love the concept. The idea was great. Uh, it And the werewolves, like the CGI wasn't terrible. I just didn't like the design. The comedy was great. There could have been points where they could have pulled it back, added a little bit more horror. So it, it was just like it would get me interested at times and then they would do something to kind of pull me out and be like, oh, okay, now I remember what they're doing here. And this, this just isn't working for me, but. Did you believe the, the chemistry between Andy and um, Seraphine? Uh, towards the end. Yes. It got better in the beginning. It was a little weird. Uh, it felt too much like a romantic comedy. Uh, I was just, you know, I was really waiting for him to like, you know, stand outside the her, her house with the speaker just you know like waiting for her to come to the window i'm like oh my god you know just to end that part now um but once it picked up yeah the, I, I actually liked they worked really well together and his acting did get better the way like the more it went on like once you dropped him being the, the joke it became a little bit more interesting and the ending was i'll, I'll give the ending uh, credit that was really cool i like the way that they did the little werewolf fight at the end thing did you like the the quote unquote villains? Did you like Claude and his right said Fred dressed band of friends? <laughs> when because I when love were, Claude, he's great. When they were werewolves, they were they were cool, except for the way they they looked. I thought they were cool. When they weren't werewolves, uh, I just thought I was like, okay, what is so scary about these French guys? So I I kept waiting for like like some kind of like you know uh, a cycling fest or something to kind of like break out like they're gonna put on the tight pants and just start like cycling after him and like hold up traffic or something because that's kind of what they look like to me is like you know these don't look like bad dudes. The last thing you want is werewolves with excellent cardio, right? They look like they had excellent cardio, though. I mean, I was kind of jealous of the werewolves' abs. Like, when they were turning, I was like, what do I got to do to get that kind of, like, you know, what was that, like a 12-pack? Well, they're always running. And and one thing I like in a movie is a recurring bit, something that keeps coming back. And it's the whole thing with the guy walking his dog. Every time they're running out of the house and running after somebody, mm. it happens, like, several times. That cracked me up. And, yeah, they're always on the move. But I just thought the one thing that didn't sit well with me, even the first time I saw this movie, and I, I Nick, I'm going to call back to one of your episodes that I just listened to, um, Claude's reasoning when he's explaining to Andy why they're doing what they're doing was a little Nazi-ish to me. Oh, yeah. I'm like, you want to build a better race. <laughs> Wait a minute now. <laughs> Yeah, that scene in the church where he like explains all that. I was like, oh, major Nazi vibes there, Claude. Right. <laughs> Other than that, uh -huh. I was, yeah, I was good with it. Which and is Dave weird because Claude is like the worst Nazi name you can ever think of. Like, you know, like no one, no Nazi is going to take Claude seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's what happened. He was like a low ranking Nazi that escaped to Paris and now he's a werewolf and he's trying to get the Nazi thing going again because he's in charge. So now he gets to be <laughs> Nazi Claude. But Dave, uh, did you go into this expecting like a horror movie or did you expect it to be a comedy or like where were your expectations? And I mean, obviously you were not a big fan of this, but I'm curious like what your starting point was. Um, 
I was expecting a horror movie. I, I, I mean, I figured there would be some comedy because I was familiar with American Werewolf in London. So I, I figured, okay, there'll be some humor. Uh, and then with, you know, uh, Tom Ever Scott, I was like, okay, he he does humor and seriousness, like, you know, pretty decently. So I, I kind of figured that was going to be there. I I just was not expecting, you know, Brocon, you know, 1998 to pop out. <laughs> that was a little, a little weird. Like when I first started watching, like, what is going on here? Uh, and there were several moments where I felt I was watching a Scooby-Doo movie. Um, that was just weird. <laughs> But it, it, I think that's kind of what hurt it. Like if I, if I would have known going in what this was, I might have enjoyed it a little bit more, like maybe five percent. Uh, hey, five percent's a lot for this movie. Five percent is a lot. Yes, because <laughs> uh, you you set up Tom Everett Scott's character to be sort of like the the nice guy, but also the the desperate loser. Where like he doesn't know how to be cool, he doesn't know how to act around uh, women, and you put him with Julie Delpy, who's beautiful and who's very confident, and who, at least in the portrayal of this character, uh, is very like stoic in in how she presents. So you've got like even though you know they're probably fairly close to the same age at the time the movie is coming out, she seems so much more mature than him. To the point where their chemistry doesn't work for a long time, as you pointed out, Dave, and it like it has to get to the point where they're sort of like bonded by the shared like trauma experience, which isn't completely uncommon for horror films. So it's retreading some ground that we've seen in other stuff. But the sort of like the lost puppy dog presentation of his character where he's like oh i'm the guy with the shoe and then oh she had blood on her hands and i have to be the guy responsible for uh like her not committing suicide and then he finally gets her to go on the date and it's all of these like the gags with the the condom chewing gum which they take from cone heads and then like he spits coffee on himself and then drops coffee on his crotch and it's like that the way that whole scene is orchestrated is to sort of present him like insecure goofball which I guess he is. And then when we get to the point where he uh, goes out with Julie Bowen and like he's freaking out, but he's like the werewolf in him has made him confident. Uh, it's made him like strong. It's made him like very horny, apparently. And all, so it's like as we're watching his character sort of like go through the growing pains of becoming a werewolf. It's neither really of those two versions of the character that finally end up being the the version of them that stick at the end. And I guess as as just a fan of werewolf and horror films and comedies, like the first film is a horror movie that uses levity to sort of balance itself out. And then we get to this film and you're almost set up for a very similar sequel that could have like hit a lot of the same points just in a different location still been almost pretty close in dna to the original movie and instead this is like a very very small dna sample that then rewrites it to be this sort of low hanging like broy comedy at moments and so it's a it's a very comedy forward movie that is i felt aimed more at an adolescent audience so I think that's ultimately where the other shoe falls in this case is that it just 
has an identity crisis between wanting to stay connected to the original and also wanting to do its own thing. And I honestly, like I appreciate movies that like are going to take big risks and are going to do things that go against the grain. And I mean, this movie takes some big risks, especially with a, a fairly beloved property and you're waiting nearly 20 years to make the sequel. That's, it's a lot of pressure that's sort of like weighing this movie down before it even gets made. So I hear you. And my takeaway from all of that is if you're feeling awkward, nervous around women, not sure of yourself, go get bit by a werewolf. That'll solve all of that. Yeah, <laughs> that is have... what I'm hearing you say. <laughs> yeah, you'll have a lot of other problems, but like you'll you'll do much better in social situations. You'll be yeah, confident well, AF all day. Yeah. One of the problems is you're going to have to hope you can find a woman that wants to do wolfy style. <laughs> well, what do you, you know, know about wolfy style? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm we've just saying I, I, I've known nights. some. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying I, I've known some furries in my life. Okay, I, I, I don't hang out with them, but I've known them. <laughs> so to me, the appeal and there's no chemistry for a good portion of the film. You're right. But the appeal, I think, is when they first meet on the Eiffel Tower when he's going to, they're on the Daredevil tour. So he's going to bungee jump and show his friends he can do what they do and be douchey just like them. Uh, first of all, that would kill him. I'm sorry. If you bungee jump oh, yeah. 900 feet and go flying back up and hit your head, you're dead. You're, you're, not, you're not walking from that. But it's this, it's this bizarre meat cute around suicide. Yeah. That is a weird tone to set. <laughs> and so I don't see the appeal other than, like you said, he wants to be the savior and make sure she's OK, doesn't do it again. But we get that long shot when she's standing up there ready to jump and he's staring at her and we get the goo goo eyes. And it's like he's really drawn to her. Maybe it's because she's a little wolfy and, and who knows, or she, he just thinks she's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. I don't know. But it's so weird and there's no chemistry. Then he goes to try to save her. And the only thing I can think is when they go to the house, her name is Seraphine. She's French. She's got a little bit of danger tied to her after what they just went through. Um, she's exotic. They're in a strange land. There's a lot of appeal I can see for him, regardless of what he is like in her. Like she's super attractive in that way. She's very different from what he's ever known. And he hangs out with these douchebags. So he probably only is hanging out with college chicks, you know, in the U.S. And this is something like this worldly woman of France who's so mysterious. I get it. I get the appeal. But, yeah, they, they need to build that chemistry because it seems like he immediately falls for her, which is so bizarre. And the other running bit I forgot to mention is when he hits his head because he hits it immediately. And then he constantly is hitting his head the rest of the movie. And he's he's concussed every 10 minutes. I don't know how he survives and walks away at the end of this movie. I really don't. <laughs> it's possible that the whole movie is just a hallucination after he smashes his head into the underside of that iron beam on the Eiffel Tower. That'd be a very weird interpretation of the film. But yes, he is constantly hitting his head. And at the very least, he would have had significant symptoms and probably fractured skull from that. Like, even if he survives, he's not getting out of the hospital. But since you brought it up, like right after that happens, he wakes up in the hospital. They have his like nose bandage because 
for some reason, they just need to make it look like he's had head trauma. So that's the way you do it. Because it's hysterical when he smiles. <laughs> his little nose is smushed. But so that scene where he first sees uh, Seraphine sort of like walking in the hallway, when he gets up out of the bed and gets into the hallway, like the dynamic camera work that they chose for that, it almost is like he's in a dream because the camera's moving all over the place in a very compact space as well. So the camera rigging to shoot that number one is impressive, but as a stylistic choice, it's also very interesting because it only happens, I think like twice in the film where they do it, but it's like, it's all white. It's all very sterile. He's like running around frantically and the camera is like sweeping all around him and in these hallways. And it's actually like very, very impressive camera work. And I was just trying to sort of like rationalize, like why this moment do you choose to employ this type of strategy when of the moments in the movie where there's action that maybe could benefit from that, most of them don't really use that. So the director, Anthony Waller, I looked him up and he'd only done like, I think two things before this. Mm -hmm. So I attribute just his inexperience in shooting and, you know, maybe his, his assistant director, DP, somebody was talking in his ear and saying, maybe we should try this. Maybe we should try that. And he ends up, with getting lucky and getting some good shots because no offense to the man, I'm sure he's gone on to have illustrious, an illustrious career, but at this moment in time, I don't think he was well-suited for this project. They needed more of an action director because there's a lot of action sequences in this horror movie. Yeah. There was an interview that I've seen. Uh, occasionally it pops up on my social media feed. I think it's with Orson Welles and the interviewer is asking him like, how did you like, how did you do this? Like, how did you know you could do this? And he was like, ignorance. And he's like, nobody told me I couldn't do it. So I just did it. And like, it created this whole new style and made him this like avant-garde filmmaker. And so I think Hitchcock is like that too. Yeah. Sort of just like ignorance is bliss. Like you don't know what you can't do until you try it and can't do it. So I, I love that, that, scene with that particular style of shot making is just this weird anomaly in like pretty much the not the middle but end of the first third of the movie and it's all like the setting and everything like everything's white everything's very serene and clean and other than like he's got a little like blood i think on his bandages and she's holding the bag with the the hearts that she just stole out of surgery that you kind of don't realize until like the comic beat hits at the end. He just sees her and he's enamored with her presence and he wants her to understand that it's him. And then the doctor stumbles out of the operating room, knocks him down and he's like, Oh, like she stole my heart. And then she's, she's gone. And we're sort of back on track with the movie that we had departed from for the previous few minutes. Right. What did Dave? you think, though, Dave? I'm curious of did you find any of the humor in this funny or did you not really? It was it not your style at all, because when he says, oh, she stole my heart and he's like, yeah, me too. I just, it was <laughs> cute to me. It was really cute to me. I, I thought they, they really hit it with the with the humor. It just felt out of place at times. Um, but no, the humor. So was you laughed. Good. Yeah. I, I mean, like the 
the interaction with the three bros i thought was great like that that would have been a good movie just following them just being you know stupid bros i i would watch a movie with that because they had great chemistry together uh i was i was actually kind of sad when the when the one friend died because like oh man that sucks and i was i like the moment it happened like not even knowing what was going to happen it's like okay i'm familiar with the franchise enough to know he's coming back and he's going to get even funnier because once they die it's like that's when the humor really it's like apparently apparently you have to die to be funny in these movies uh so that was i I was looking forward to him returning um because that chemistry was really entertaining uh it just it just kind of like at certain moments of the movie it felt like you could have done better with making it a little bit more serious to kind of hit that okay this is a serious situation you're a werewolf now you're going to kill and eat people this is not a funny moment but let's throw in some jokes just to kind of you know hammer at home it, it was almost like a looney tunes presents a werewolf movie okay so the funniest thing to me wasn't even a spoken line the funniest thing to me is at the end when they raid the church and everybody is getting out and um, their buddy Chris has been nailed to that cross, that wooden cross, and he comes running out of the church with the cross on his back, which I guess the actor <laughs> later complained that he was covered in bruises because he really did that. That and then and then the one uh, cop is like seeing it, and the music is swelling up, and they're doing the sign of the cross, and he's running with the cross on his back. I am laughing so hard at that every time, and nothing gets spoken there. I don't know, just a lot of it worked for me. It was really funny to me. I loved the whole cross thing, like when he's on it and then he's trying to get off it and he falls back. And it was like, that was just a great comedic moment. And like I said, him running out that that was hilarious to me. I absolutely loved that scene. Um, so, okay. yeah. The, the, so you're not the dead com- inside. OK, no. Well, I mean, I mean, you're slowly working on that by showing me these movies. But, yeah, that's I'm not there yet. I mean, since you brought it up, like Chris is a very interesting character in this movie because he's almost disposable. But at every turn where like you would expect him to die, he doesn't die and he finds a way out and he just doesn't seem like a character at the beginning that is going to make it to the end of this film. And it's not like he plays a significant role in the solving of the problem. Uh, It's not like he is the guy who steps in and, oh, I'm going to take one for the team and the werewolf like kills me so the heroes can get away. Like a lot of those things don't happen, but he's He's just a hostage for the back half of the film. (laughs) He is a hostage for the back half. And that's what I was trying to understand. Like, what do they even need him really as a hostage for other than I mean, they need leverage for Andy, I guess. But I mean, Seraphine has convinced him that they need to sort of. Uh, take down Claude anyway so I mean the the scene where Chris is sort of locked up in Seraphine's dungeon like the key escape is a good scene and it would be probably better if there was like something trying to force its way into the cage that he doesn't want in there so he has to get out uh, because it doesn't make it like the most harrowing escape but I love the ingenuity that goes into like planning that scene out. Let, let me stop you there just because I want to interject. That actor, again, ha- had a had a just an attitude on set, I guess, in a good way. He spoke right up and said that he hated that big jacket they had him wearing. It was his idea to take it off, string the clothes together and throw the boot at the key. It was the actor's idea because he wanted an excuse to take the jacket off. 
And then he purposely left it off tied to the floor so he wouldn't have to wear it for the rest of the movie. <laughs> hey, credit to Phil Buckman who played Chris because right it's like yeah you you design his character and then i think when we first see him on the train he's like he's just in a tank top and then they get out and he's wearing this like heavy leather letterman jacket and so i don't blame him for wanting to get that off of him because everybody else gets to dress like reasonable but they're like nah, we want you to look like a 90s bro so you have to wear this so it makes sense at least that he tries to you know push against the grain but yeah that scene actually like makes sense with what has happened up until that point, you don't even need that scene in the movie. Like they can come and let him out of the cage later once like things have died down. But I love just the set piecing, the sequencing, the fact that like he kisses his boot for good luck before he tosses it at the key. Just like the little stuff like that really adds up. And I don't even think he really has all that much dialogue. He's sort of there to keep the keep the wheel turning. Right. Like because he's the one who knows that she is uh, that she's blending hearts in the kitchen. So he knows like something's weird and he's like looking out for his friend. So he's there to just like keep that wheel moving slightly. But he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't really offer something to the overall plot that much other than being a hostage. So I'm surprised, but also glad to see that he made it to the end, even though like he still almost cost him again by not tying down the bungee cord properly at the very end as well so frustrating again (laughs) my thing is with with a lot of this in the movie like when andy hits his head the fact that he doesn't tie off the rope twice there are so many things that happen in this movie where you're like i have to just suspend disbelief because i was watching this with my husband and he rolls his eyes all the time and i'm like you know what just just pressing play on the dvr or, or you know dvd player says to me we're already suspending disbelief because this is a werewolf movie <laughs> so you have to just let everything slide or let nothing slide and if you're going to let nothing slide why are you even bothering you're going to be miserable for an hour 35 like you got to just kind of roll with it you know <laughs> dave were you miserable oh. for an hour and 35 minutes uh i i wasn't miserable i just i i I'm used to her torturing me with movies because she's showing me some crap that I'm just like, okay, you can't. I mean, like she she literally gets on me for liking the movie Nope. And like after the movies that I've had to watch of hers, I'm like, no, you need to get down off your high horse because there's <laughs> there's there's some you can't judge no more. Um <laughs> but no, this of all the ones she's tortured me with, this one wasn't as bad. I just okay. I think what hurt me was the expectations of I wanted something different than what I got. And I'll, I will admit my standards are getting high with horror comedy because like after watching Tucker and Dale, I'm like, OK, this this is the new bar. This is where horror comedy is for me. Uh, this from the I, man who watches Tubi movies. You, House <laughs> Shark. Come on, bro. Come on. Do not do not diss the glorious that is House Shark. Um, I just don't see how you can in the same breath. What, what, when, this when movie, you, but still love when you the other realize ones. like the parody that that movie is and the, the classic lines that come out of it it's it's oh, an right. icon in its own <laughs> like way <laughs> hey tubi's got some good stuff to be fair i mean they also have a good selection of older movies that are available for free uh we love we love yeah. around these parts um dave i want to ask you there is a scene in this movie that is fairly cliche for not just horror movies but any movie where the lead and a love interest are 
entangled in some sort of thriller event where somebody's hurt and they have to either bandage or clean up a wound for the other person. Is this romantic at all? Because it always seems to be very romantic in movies. And here, I think it's the first time that they really embrace is she's like cleaning a, a sword wound that he has on his back. Um. Oh, yeah, I'll definitely say that's romantic. I mean, like me personally, I'm waiting for my first kiss with my girlfriend after I break my leg and she has to set it. I mean, that's that's like the, <laughs> the standard of like when that happens, then we can kiss until then. She's not allowed to touch me. That's that's the demarcation line for uh, their chemistry in this film is her cleaning out his festering wound. Hey, it's hot. All right. Because <laughs> she had already she had already um, bandaged his ankle when he had gotten wounded. So she had already like nursed him back to hell. She had made him his little heart smoothie and she had hopped on top of him, like trying to explain this. And she takes her top off, just like not even thinking about it, distracts him by having him grab her boobs. So she doesn't at that point, she doesn't seem even remotely romantically interested in him. But you can see like he's like fully engulfed in her presence at that point. And so it's not until I mean, I don't know, that's definitely like the last third of the movie where they finally have real chemistry for the first time. And that's that's pretty late to be burying it. But also, I guess, rewarding if you're looking at it from the perspective of that, like she was not interested in him the whole time, but he's like constantly having to work for it. Not that sounds wrong, not work for it, but he's earned it in a way that he never would have been able to um, having just met her traditionally. I don't think he would have she would have given him the time of day had this exactly. situation not happened. Yeah. No. Yeah. Her character just seemed like far too mature. And I mean, we don't even know how old she is. She's a werewolf. So she could be hundreds of years old at that point. Don't even know. <laughs> no, we we know she's not, sir, because of the serum that her stepfather was working on. So she hadn't been a werewolf that long. Correct. Her, her dad did conveniently. <laughs> hey, I was giving her credit. I was like, she's 100, but she looks great. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So since you brought up her stepdad, like there is a reveal of the dad in the bed that is done with CGI that I, I felt like didn't need to be done with CGI because he pulls back the curtain, freaks out. But right after that, when he's sort of crawling away uh, or crawling towards Chris as he's escaping that's done all with like practical work so it just feels right. like that moment where they pull the curtain back would have been one of those good moments to really not rely too heavily on the CGI but use what's right in front of you that's like tried and true so if it is true that they were having all sorts of like problems with the animatronics and stuff like that then that definitely makes sense but also, I have a hot take on that. Go for it. Studio interference. When they see a rough cut of something, they send back notes. I'm sure you know this. And yeah. one of the notes was more jump scares. We're not getting enough jump scares. So my guess is 
that they tried it and it didn't look good, so they didn't use it. And then when the studio said, no, we do need a jump scare there, they went back and CGI'd it in. That's my hot take on that. I, that's what I think happened. What about you, Dave? Um, I could see that being the case. Um, it, it's I, I didn't like the CGI look. Uh, as you know, we know I'm not, but yeah, like when you had the practical effects, that to me looked like the best werewolf in the movie. Like that was actually creepy having him crawl and then the no legs. It's just like, I wanted to laugh at it because it, it was ridiculous of a werewolf with no legs crawling after somebody. I was like, this, this should be hilarious, but it actually creeped but he's me like out a little bit. He's like strapped to the bed and he's like dragging the bed. That was like scary. Yeah. Wow. They, they, like how strong they, is he? Yeah. They nailed that part. Uh, that I think that's where, now that I think about it, maybe I would have enjoyed the werewolves a little bit more if they were practical. They would have looked more freaky. And maybe it was a CGI, just it didn't work for me. Well, you had mentioned like jump scares being sort of like an important ingredient in horror films. And there is one later that it's not quite as much of a jump scare, but the setup for the shot is they're in the catacombs. Uh, I think it's like the police, like somebody's down there and they have a flashlight. Of course, the batteries are like running out in the dark where they need it. But as the light is coming on and off, like you can see the werewolf coming down this tunnel. And that's a great shot. And another one that I think probably would have benefited from being done with practical effects. But because you can hide so much of it in the dark as well, it's not going to be exposed to full light. You don't need to like show as much of it. But that scene I think shows that like the DNA to make it a true, like a tried and true horror film is there. I think it's a phrase I've used before in other uh, episodes, but it, I say it has good bones because the friend I was talking to, I was like, I watch a lot of like HGTV and I was like, I like that terminology applied to movies because like you have Julie Delpy, you have like werewolf lore here. You have some really good shot making. You have some creative like camera work at times you have and set pieces. Yeah. Like you have the DNA to make this, I think a significantly better film than it ended up being. And I think that is ultimately where sort of, this movie starts to tip towards like, oh, this is a bad movie that a lot of people didn't like. That's why it has like uh, what's got a 31 meta score and it's got a seven on the tomato meter. So even the audience to, uh, tomato score is only 30. So I think the thing that ultimately starts to tip it more towards the bad side of the scale is not so much that it's like bad in and of itself. It's that it's living up to a movie with like a colossal reputation. And it leaves a lot of meat on the bone like this could have been significantly better than it is. And it just doesn't quite get there. And then if you can parcel that out, set that aside and just see this movie for like what it is and only what it is, I think you still do get like uh, a movie where the comedy beats can work. You get a movie where you're adopting like full werewolf cg for the first time so it's going to have some growing pains but that being said they did a good job designing it they put in the time the effort the money to actually make it look as good as it possibly could and you went and you got someone like julie delpy and like whatever she took the she took it for just the paycheck 
doesn't matter. Like she still showed up. She still delivered. She gave you the kind of uh, caliber of performance that you would eventually need to to take this thing to the next level. So I think a lot of the stuff is there that would point to a version of this movie in some alternate universe actually being considered a fairly good movie. Well, you know, they only had a budget of about 25 million and CGI is not cheap. And the not, paychecks not at that for time either. A couple of these people, yeah, I'm sure we're not cheap. So they did the best, I think, what they could. Um, but I think one thing that is maybe polarizing also for audiences in this, I happen to love it, but it's a love-hate thing, is two words, wolf vision. The <laughs> werewolf's POV. I freaking love that. But some people don't. <laughs> a lot of people don't. <laughs> they needed to see those ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I love how they gave it like that orangey yellow hue as like, you know, how dogs can only see certain colors. The, the werewolves only see in this color scheme. Mm -hmm. And it's lower to the ground when they're down and it's higher up when they're walking. And it's subtle if you pay attention. I dig that totally. Yeah, it's almost like a predator where like he has infrared that gives him a uh, uh, advantage in the field, so to speak. Uh, Dave, what were you going to say? Um, I, I, I agree. I do like the wolf vision. I didn't like the color scheme, though. That okay. that was not like that kind of just was a little weird to me. Um, but I did like the wolf vision because I remember seeing that in a movie uh, called Wolfen. Uh, I remember they would do that where you would get the perspective of the wolves that were hunting the people down. And I I thought that was awesome. And it was the first time I ever seen it. So I like that they did it in this movie, but yeah, it did kind of feel like a predator thing. Like, okay, like, you know, the color just made it seem a little bit weird, but I like the creativeness of trying something different again. That that's something I cannot take away from this movie is it was very creative. They were trying to do a different type of werewolf movie and they they did. Uh it just didn't hit well with me, but you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna knock them for it. I'll, I'll be nice. Wait. Were you did you notice, Dave, when when there's a dead dog in this movie? Did you did you hear me crying from miles and miles away when they show the dead dog? I was like, movie, yeah. how dare you? <laughs> yeah. And, and I would have done the same thing if it was a cat, but it was a dog. So I was like, eh. <laughs> well, like the way that they showed the dead dog, it wasn't even like the dog got eaten. It's like the dog got like steamrolled and it was just like pressed <laughs> flat. And then the cop holds it up and it's still just holding its shape. I'm like, oh, my God. I was like, little tongues hanging out of its mouth. <laughs> yeah. So that it is, is that is the tone of this movie. Uh, and like if, if you can get on board with that scene, then you'll probably be much more uh, adaptable or amenable to the rest of the film in general. But uh, I know you guys are well researched and well read. How do you feel about doing a few trivia questions? Time for trivia. Let's do it. Uh, I will do my best. I'm I'm not well researched or read on anything, so you, you okay. are going to see me. Be oh, Godzilla. <laughs> oh, that's true. Godzilla. There we go. Godzilla. Uh, <laughs> okay, so question number one: Tom Stern and Tim Burns received writing credits for this script, but that only came after arbitration due to massive rewrites. How many additional writers were involved after Stern and Burns? I'm going to go with four. I'm going to go with three. 
Well, if you multiply four by three, you will get the answer of 12. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, Stern, uh, Tom Stern said he he got sent a stack of scripts and he counted all of the writers that were involved. And there was 12 other writers uh, <laughs> that were brought in. And that's because it leads into question number two. Stern and Burns were kicked off the project at one point, but how long did it take after they were removed to find their director? Oh, I would think it would be a short period of time, less than a year, six months. I'm going to go with a year. It was two years. It took them two years. This movie was in development for six years. So, yes, the script was definitely probably the biggest hurdle because Landis still has a writing credit on this for like characters created by. And he actually submitted one of the uh, rejected drafts of this script. So it ends up coming down to Byrne Stern and Anthony Waller coming on a couple of years later. And the three of them are the ones who get the full writing credit. So you said this is like released 16 years, give or take after the original. Yeah, I think the first one was 80, 81. If you think about it, it was really in the hopper and 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 going at 10 years after. Yeah. Like they were trying to get it out quick. I mean, 10 years isn't super quick, but still. I mean, I think it's reason, reasonably fast. Like, I mean, by today's standards, like if you're not working on the sequel before you've got the first one in the can, like you're behind the curve. But yeah, back in the 80s, like you see, I think Terminator was from 84 to 91, 92. So the gap between sequels was not meant to always be this tiny little turnaround. It was like, hey, is there really a reason to make a sequel? Are we going right. to do it justice? Like, and can we get the financing and everybody behind it? Now it's like sequels are almost like the built in model. And I've seen, unfortunately, a lot of movies and tv shows have sort of written themselves into a position where it's like season one is the setup for what we hope will be season two and like it's a very risky gambit to think that like you're just going to be picked up and be successful i know that there's you know streaming services out the wazoo there's probably more small budget films getting made than ever before because there's so many different avenues to get something produced but to, to sort of pigeonhole yourself into like not putting your best foot forward with the hopes that a sequel will be coming down the line is a, is a weird way to sort of write the, the foundational material for a film. Well, I have to wonder what draft had the ending that actually, and if there, you have any listeners that are Australian in mm. Australia and you have the DVD, let us know, please write in because apparently on the Australian DVD, there is an ending with a baby, a wolf baby, a werewolf baby. How that happens, I don't know, because he gets cured because he kills Claude. She gets the blood transfusion. But that is actually supposedly on the Australian DVD. So I wonder what draft that came from. Yeah, (laughs) seems very weird. You beat me to the punch on question number three because you nailed it. The the alternate ending was Andy running to the hospital where Seraphine had just had their little purebred werewolf baby. But that implies that at some point they had full on like werewolf sex before either of them were cured. And they don't make that apparent in the movie at all. Like he's running around half naked with his pants off a lot. But <laughs> I think, yeah, I don't think they ever like sleep together actually in the movie that they show us. 
Nope, they do not. And also, I question that. Yeah. How are they having purebred werewolf baby because she gets the blood transfusion? I, I don't know. Seems weird. <laughs> Is it to set up the sequel, though, to... Hey, they're they're now werewolf parents, and this is going to be the comedy where they have a werewolf baby. So it's like I can see oh why you God. don't. I see why you don't include that in the uh, theatrical release or in the subsequent uh, DVD releases outside of Australia. But it would be very weird to have the Australian version of this film and to not know yeah. that the other one exists. Right? Could you imagine watching that one, and that's the only one you've been exposed to? <laughs> It's kind of a cool experience, though. It, it, I mean, a lot of horror movies do that thing where, like, at the end, oh, this person, the thing that you thought was safe is now unsafe. And just like it's kind of like a wink to the audience, like, oh, hey, we got you one more time right before the movie ends. And it's not completely uncommon, but it just that doesn't seem to fit this movie at all, even with as weird and as funny as it is. So many, it's a hallmark of so many bad movies because we just uh, covered and released our episode on Rawhead Rex over at Let's Talk Turkeys. And that movie suffers from the 80s trope and I guess into the 90s, if you count this movie with that ending, of where they tack on this little pop-up ending where you could maybe do a sequel and it doesn't fit the, the theme the theme of the film. It doesn't fit the ending. It doesn't make sense. And it's like, well, we did that just in case we wanted to make a sequel. It's like, wah, wah. Why'd you have to do that movie? Even if you're a bad movie, don't do it. I mean, I guess that's why like post credits and stuff has become popular because you can throw stuff like that in there. And then, hey, if it didn't land with the audience, like we're not going to commit to that. It's just uh, it was just a post credit scene for fun. Don't pay attention. <laughs> true, true. I, I was now knowing that I'm actually really disappointed that they didn't do the comedy sequel. With, you know, <laughs> the two parents raising the werewolf baby. I would have loved to see that movie. Actually, that would have been hilarious. Yeah, I mean, hey, send send uh, Julie Delpy a big paycheck and hopefully she's got rent due and uh, <laughs> maybe she'll take you up on it. I mean, I, I'm going to assume that Tom Everett Scott and Julie are probably both available to uh, work on this project. So submit a draft. It's it's the three men and a little werewolf we didn't know we needed. Oh, yeah, there you go. I know because, right, Chris made it, too. So it's like you got the buddy and then you've got the parents and the three of them can be... <laughs> The full figuring, house setup. Yeah, figuring out how to raise this werewolf in a, in the modern world. <laughs> oh, no, I want that. <laughs> I, I kind of want it, too, to be honest. Uh, but you had mentioned that, like, werewolves is sort of your favorite subgenre of horror, right? So I want to know, what's your favorite werewolf movie? Uh, American Werewolf in London, which would, I think, shock people, like, that I even give this one the time of day, considering. Mm -hmm. But... Um, my second favorite is a movie called Howl, H-O-W-L, from 2015. I believe it was British. Um, there's a lot of good ones out there. and But but American Wolf in London, for sure, is number one. What about you, Dave? Um, probably, for me, I like... Uh, I gotta go Bad Moon. was really just shocked me, because I went in thinking this was going to be a terrible movie, and it turned out to be a lot of fun. Uh, just a uh, good werewolf design, everything. Um, I, I do also like American Werewolf uh, in London. Uh, there's a really, there's two really sort of bad ones I enjoy because they're terrible, and I highly recommend people see them. Uh, wolf Cop is oh my just God. <laughs> that is so <laughs> so bad but funny, and then Bubba the Redneck Werewolf is just the dumbest thing you will ever watch, but just so much fun to watch. 
Okay, okay. I I did see Wolf Cobb. I'll have to check out Bubba. But I guess like if I had to pick, like the first thing I remember like being exposed to was Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. So I mean that's like classic monster stuff, and it's got like you know the most traditional Wolfman design that you could think of, and so that one's like always one that sort of like informed my werewolf taste but probably the one that like i really loved when i was young was silver bullet because it also is like kind of geared towards kids but in the same vein as like maybe monster squad or something where it still succeeds in its horror elements while being geared towards a slightly younger audience and two words gary Busey. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I, I, Major I bonus loved, points. Yeah, I, I always loved Silver Bullet. Um, I, I think my love for it dropped off a little bit once I read the story. And I was like, well, the story was just so much creepier and so much better. They, they expanded on it, I thought. I thought yeah, the, the it, bones were there, as Nick would yeah, say. But, uh, but, but the movie was still, I mean, I, I have it. I picked it up a while ago and I still watch it because it is like a fun movie to pop on every now and then and watch. Uh, the werewolf design was a little little bad but at the time like it didn't bother me like i i, I still enjoyed it so I, nick let me ask you real quick mm-hmm. since you mentioned the classic universal werewolf how did you feel about the benicio del toro redo of that i don't hate it i know a lot of people hated it i mean the thing that i think becomes weird about it is when like anthony hopkins wolfs out at the end like that's when it starts to get like he's jumping off the walls and stuff and so it all of the credit that it had worked to try to earn till that point kind of like it's done a disservice by, by approaching it that way, because I think a lot of the stuff that like Benicio is doing up until that point is done very well. I mean, Hugo weaving is in this movie as well. Uh, So it's got an excellent cast. It keeps like the Gothic tone of the sort of original Wolfman universe. And it's been a long time since I've seen it, but like the, I think what I took away from it more was that it wasn't him that I was afraid of. It was the people and how they treat him. That is the thing that is like the fear factor for me at this point. Right. It's like, I'm not really like scared of the werewolves. It's like, I'm scared of how like they're torturing this guy in order to prove that he's crazy, even though he's not crazy. So it's definitely not going to be for everybody and i think you know people that hold on to the original sort of universal monster series as the the pinnacle of that style of wolfman will probably dislike it and i know it's not the most well received but it's well made and it it delivers on what i would have wanted although my expectations were fairly low for it did you forgive nicholson then for hopping around at the end of wolf (laughs) wolf is a different story Wolf is a different story because, look, he just okay. has like a little bit of makeup on. Right. He doesn't become like a, a white chimpanzee and start bouncing off the walls. Uh, so Wolf is a way different tone. But I also like Wolf okay. a lot, to be fair. Uh, but I like There's a that, lot of good movies out there with werewolves. Yeah, I like that Wolf is a sort of like a noirish, like erotic thriller in a lot of ways. And it's like this is such an atypical werewolf movie. But again, it has a fantastic cast. 
And it's just it's so unique in its way that it, it stands out. And it's been a while since I've seen that, but I do. I've been wanting to watch it again over the last couple of years. So maybe I'll pop that on sometime in this week. Nice. I'm going to say that you're a werewolf expert, even though that may be a little bit too much. But we'll say you're a werewolf movie expert. My question is, do these werewolves in this movie, correct me if I'm wrong, but do they just die from regular gunshots? Oh, yeah, you noticed that. It didn't take silver. It didn't. No silver, no special, nothing. They just got shot and died. And I was like, wait a second. I was like, it seems like you're not very wolfed out if that's the case. I appreciate, like you guys are pointing out throughout this, that they took a risk and did things different. I don't like the same tropes, the same lore. Change it up. Why not? That's fair. Because they did in, they introduced the whole, like, you have to cut the heart out of the werewolf that bit you and then eat his heart in order to break the curse. So it's not like they left lore and mythology in the like completely off the table they just went a different direction but yeah i saw this guy get shot and i'm like okay that's gonna sting and then i'm like wait a second he's a corpse now i was like oh okay i was like wow i forgot that the bullets (laughs) just end them like that i figured it out i've solved it nick i've solved it they took pages from all those 12 scripts randomly ripped out pages (laughs) threw them all in a bowl and then put that together and that's how we that's so we got a little bit of this a little bit of that (laughs) that's what happened so basically, this was the Hollywood version of a key party. <laughs> hey, werewolf swingers. That's a whole different movie. Uh, Nailed it. And I guess I also wanted to ask you, I mean, I know that we're not going to see it on camera, but is there no way to distinguish a male werewolf from a female werewolf? Because like we get the scene at the end where they're fighting and I was like this, I mean, come on, you'd be able to see his werewolf dong. Uh, But I guess it's like, once you transform, they're all sort of just unisex. So, okay. Again, watching this (laughs) with my husband and he's being snarky and pointing shit out to me. And I'm like, calm down, calm down, Beyonce. So when she's transforming, she's got her tits out. And then they shrink into Mm. like the werewolf chest and abs. And again, we don't see any male appendages flinging around about. So I would assume they all transform into that same model. But again, $25 million budget, CGI, they were probably limited in what they could do. Make them all look the same. Like we can't justify spending the extra budget on drawing werewolf tits. Right. Or or (laughs) werewolf balls just swinging about. Just five dollars short of being able to see a werewolf penis. That that's we were just five dollars short. <laughs> Not Dave, in the budget. I will tell you this: if you Google werewolf penis, you will find it, and you won't have to spend five dollars. <laughs> that's the one part of the internet I'm know. afraid to go. Yeah, no. <laughs> I do not want to know that. I do not want to know your search history, sir. I'm sure it's already on there. <laughs> It's not, but uh, there was, since you're a Godzilla fan, somebody had asked me like a Godzilla question and it was about like Godzilla porn or something. And I was like, I bet it exists. And so that's out there in my search history somewhere. And it does exist. So, Dave, if you're a fan, I feel like you should treat yourself. Oh, I, I've seen it. I, I have this I have this thing where I always try to disprove the whole rule 34 thing to see if there's anything out there that doesn't have porn. And I've only found one thing so far. <laughs> wow. I was going to say, if you haven't seen it, watch party. <laughs> <laughs> 
we were doing uh like kaijun uh to celebrate not just godzilla but kaiju stuff in general and during the months we do the the film club theme stuff i give away like a small gift and so i was looking on like etsy for certain things and one of the things that popped up was a godzildo and (laughs) (laughs) it's glow in the dark and i mean they had it in all like shapes and sizes it's not meant to be used but it is just a godzilla with uh Wow. A, a penis head on it and it's actually kind of cute so if you get the little one that's maybe like two <laughs> inches tall i was like yeah i could put that up on the shelf over here it's pretty funny uh i'll send I you like the- how we've turned this conversation <laughs> into cute penises to put on the shelf <laughs> I, I will i will send you the picture uh of the godzilla just uh for evidentiary purposes <laughs> that's oh. amazing i think i think uh we probably were at the time we're gonna go to critics corner and then we get to really see all of the horrible things that the critics had to say about this movie at the time. It has a meta score of 31. Uh, and it starts with a 10, 10 out of 100. And this is from Kevin wow. Thomas at the LA Times. He said, a painfully anemic variation on John Landis 1981 winner, an American werewolf in London. While the original had both wit and poignancy, and an affectionate and knowing tip of the hat to werewolf movies past, this slapdash silly new edition is so cut rate it has Luxembourg and Amsterdam standing in for the City of Light. So, I mean, this is someone who clearly was like, I like the original. If it's not the original, I'm not going to like it. Uh, So Kevin Thomas, like this movie was certainly not for you. And that's understandable. You know, it's it's not for everybody. It wasn't even for Dave. But I think Dave has come around. The more he's been here talking with us, the more this movie has grown. He started at a 10, but now he's up to like a 20. We'll, we'll say 15. That true? We'll, we'll 15. Go, okay. We'll 15. Hey, there's that 5% that came in earlier. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. We've I got... feel like Kevin went in not wanting to like it. <laughs> a lot of people do that, unfortunately. And I mean, I get it. Like when you work for... Uh, entity where you have a publisher and you have an editor and you're getting assignments a lot of the time you're probably not seeing things that you want to see and when you head into a movie being like I don't want to be here it's really hard to overcome that stigma and it seems like our friend Kevin yeah <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I'm Nick. Never it's just look. inside thing. Oh, it's okay. Um, no, I I heard how you do not like Dark Dark Man. <laughs> I know, and yet I'm still willing to work with her anyways. Yeah, as you you should. I think you should have your boundaries pushed. And how many times have you seen Darkman, to be fair? Me? Yeah. I I watch it at least once or twice a year, and I I grew up watching it all the time. It's I mean, it's not a great movie. Like, you know, a lot of people, I can see why they hate it, but it's it's fun. It's entertaining. (laughs) And there you go. That's all you need. So we're going to climb the ladder here. We're going to go from a 10 to we'll skip the 20 and we'll go to the 25 because that takes us to Roger Ebert, the Chicago Sun-Times. <gasps> Ebs. Yeah. And at the time he said, any plot discipline necessary so that we care about some characters and not the others has been lost in an orgy of special effects and general mayhem. Uh, that's not far off. <laughs> uh he he is not wrong. Uh, it's it's not quite an orgy. It's closer to a key party, as Dave said. But I I understand where he's coming from. At least he's not 
he's not here to just be like this sucked the other one was better like kind of you know that typical sort of negative review that we heard from kevin kevin Kevin. well you know uh, ebert was notoriously not a horror fan in general as well so you have to take that with a grain of salt yeah so the fact that that made it to a 25 for him is actually pretty good that's what one out of four stars i'd be curious what he scored the original though because if that's like Mm. a two and he gave this a one then it's like hey you know what that's really not that bad on his scale good point all right, so let's let's jump the ladder again, and we'll go to let's see. That's real reviews, and that's James Berardinelli. He said Delpy's injection of class into an otherwise classless production raises the specter of what this film could have been with a better script and a better cast surrounding her. And obviously, I agree very strongly with James because we talked about this earlier in the show. Uh, but yeah, she's so good and just seems like almost out of place but i was just like oh man she should be the lead and should really be like her story and her burden and not these american bungee jumping bros yeah but they were trying to appeal to the uh female audience as well because they were probably picturing um college bros dragging their girlfriends on a friday night saturday night and they need something for the chicks to chew on so you got to have the love story you got to have the bro. You got to have it. I love it or hate it. You got to have that kind of weird love story there for the women, I think, is what they were thinking. Yeah, I will say that just like uh, when I was younger, I was like, oh, I'm on board with like these guys being kind of like dipshits and doing the thing that they're doing. And then just now having not seen it in a long time and coming back to it significantly older and seeing like, hey, I know Julie Dobley's a great actress and she's great in this. I just wish as an adult, that would have been the focus. But yeah, I totally understand making it the way that it was made because it appealed to me at that particular time. So I get it. Right. That that makes sense. Like I probably would have enjoyed this a lot more if I was, you know, not so uh, older and mature and, you know, know, the sophisticated gentleman that I am today. Right. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. We've got, I'm going to give you the choice because there's three of them that all gave 50s and that's the austin chronicle the san francisco chronicle and tv guide magazine so i'll let you pick your poison on this one uh i vote for tv guide just because they're always entertaining in some fashion (laughs) all right okay let's go with it that's maitland mcdonough tv guide magazine 50 out of 100 says forget about social significance depth of character and complex thematic underpinnings and repeat after me it's only a werewolf movie. <laughs> That's a great pull quote, to be honest. Uh, what what did I say? Yeah, exactly. What did I say? Before you, gotta... you hit play, just accept it. <laughs> yeah, what movie are we watching again? Oh, an American werewolf in Paris. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's just uh, let's suspend our disbelief a little further than usual this time. <laughs> so just for kicks, uh, I did look up Ebert's uh, American Werewolf in London. He gave it two stars. He wasn't a big oh. fan of that one either, actually. Makes sense. And about where I would have pegged it, because if he's not a horror fan, then he's going to typically score lower anyway. So, all right. Good to know that, you know, it didn't fall too far from the original for old Ebs. And then we come to the highest score on the board. It's a 63. And that is the, the Globe and Mail from Toronto. And this is Liam Lacey. I said, given Waller's experience and budget, one might expect that he could upgrade the B-movie acting and stock situations. 
he doesn't. The payoff comes not in the story or acting, but the camera play and the movement. So, yes, this is a good acknowledgement of sort of like the visual storytelling of this film, because it does a good job with wolf vision, with sort of the sweeping follow cam shots, with a lot of the staging, the set piecing, all that stuff is very well done. Uh, it's just sad that this is not a uh, glowing review of the the acting or the story. But 63 out of 100? Yeah, it's pretty good. You said high- Liam, Liam, call me. Liam, <laughs> yes, call me. <laughs> Liam Lacey. That's the highest one good on job, the bro. Nice. So that, that's where you're at now. You're you're so desperate to find other people that love this movie that you're going to take <laughs> even like the highest, lowest rated one. So that's that's where we're at. I'll take what I can get, sir. Hey, the it story was of my life. That was a green box. That was not a yellow box. Sixty three counts as a good score, technically, in in the Metacritic scale. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Uh, and at the end of the shows, I always want to hear. Good comparison films so i'm going to give you both the opportunity so in thinking of this movie if somebody has seen it and liked it can you give them either a a movie that kind of follows in the same vein that you would recommend or if someone has not seen this what is a good point of comparison that could get them to take the leap and push play on an american werewolf in paris So for me, a couple jumped to mind. Obviously, we have another classic, The Howling. It's got a little bit of humor, and it's taken from a novel. It's got D. Wallace. So it's right up there, in in my opinion, with American World in London. But it's going to also set the tone for cheesy, because you get the cheesy reveal at the end. Um, another one that I think compares to this, though, is one from 2014, and it's currently uh, free on Tubi. So at the time of this recording, look it up, called Late Phases, mm-hmm. P-H-A-S-E-S, Late Phases. And at the heart of that movie, uh, it's got, uh, I can't remember her name, Tina Louise was Ginger on Gilligan's Island, I think. One of her last films, she's, she's uh, older. But at the heart of the movie is a father's estranged son relationship. And it tugs at your heartstrings. They try to have that central, it's not a love interest. It's a father-son relationship, but it's there. It's got great practical effects, which is my all day, every day. I love me some practical effects twice on Sunday. And uh, and then the last one I would throw out there is Dog Soldiers, also mm. on Tubi right now. The Neil Marshall film from 2002. He did The Descent. His Dog Soldiers is off the chain, like practical effect heaven. And it's fun. It's an action packed like this one. It moves. You don't. It's over before you know it. So those are my recommends. But I. But I love them all. To be honest, I'm a werewolf fan, as we've established. So, Dave, um, do you have what do you got for us? Uh, okay, so um, I, I would say I would compare it to uh, about this time last year. I watched a movie on Tubi that was probably a bad student film called Werewolf Massacre at Hell's Gate, and okay. the werewolves were basically costumes from walmart <laughs> I, w- I would compare <laughs> actually no i wouldn't go that far uh, seriously though i would say in between uh i would go on the bad spectrum i would say wolf cop because that's a bad movie but entertaining at the same time enough to kind of like you know you can watch it and you're not going to come out hating yourself afterwards and then on the good spectrum i would agree with dog soldiers 
because it was an action-packed movie, good werewolf design. So it's like, I, I would say like anyone who liked either one of those movies would probably enjoy this. Awesome. I've heard really good things about Dog Soldiers from all of my friends that are horror fans, and I've just never pulled the trigger on it. I feel like just horror in general is a genre that I've watched uh, less and less over time, not because I don't like it or because I don't have my favorites in that genre. I think just my general viewing habits are by the time we finish dinner, we sit down on the couch, we try to watch something that is going to appeal to both my fiance and me. And 99% of the time, she's not okay with watching horror films right before bed. So it leaves me a very small window to actually watch horror movies. Um, but pull the trigger on dog yeah, soldiers. I, I have some because time the, today. The sequel actually, is, do, it. do it because the sequel, um, Dog Soldiers Fresh Meat with Neil Marshall attached, is in development hell. It's been there for a while. But if he can pull that off, it's you won't be sorry. Awesome. All right. I will check that out. And I'm going to throw one more into into the ring for contention and I'm going to say werewolves within it's fairly recent. It's based off a video game. It's on Hulu right now. I think it's 2021, something like that. Refresh me. Is that the one with the group of people? Yes. Uh, One of them's like the young sheriff. Yes. And they're in a cabin and somebody's the werewolf and they don't know who it is. So it's so good. Yeah. It's like a whodunit, but it keeps the sort of comedy at a certain level. But it also has some good werewolf effects. Um, yes. So it's it's a good blend, I think, of like horror comedy. Uh, so if if you're willing to engage in that and sort of give uh, suspend your disbelief, as you said, then I think that could be a, a good gateway drug to get you to watch an American werewolf in Paris. So I'm just going to throw this out there because we're talking all things werewolf. Yeah, there's one that has been forthcoming. Oh, I'm sorry. Two that have been forthcoming for a long time. There's one with Edward Furlong, Eddie Furlong, and wow. his buddy from Brain Scan called <laughs> Forest Hills. And okay. it's also got D. Wallace in it. It's forthcoming. It's been coming for a year. They, they've wrapped. I don't know why it hasn't released. Supposed to be a pretty good practical effect B movie. And then another one with Eric Roberts, who I freaking <laughs> adore in bad movies, right? Yeah. Called The Beast Comes at Midnight. Again, it was supposed to have released during COVID and it didn't. So I would say if you love werewolf movies, keep an eye out for those two as well, because I'm anxiously awaiting those. All right. I will definitely have to keep uh, keep an eye out for those two. Other than that, we've arrived at the end of the show. Thank you both so much for your time and for bringing a movie that. Dave, even though you may have not had the most fun with it, it was a lot of fun to talk to you both about it. So thank you. Uh, thank you for having us on. I, I I like having, you know, the, the, this format was a lot of fun and it was nice for once not having her, you know, whip me constantly to like, make sure I get my lines in correctly at the right time. So, <laughs> okay. Secretly. He loves that. And also thank you, Nick. This Statist. was a blast. <laughs> this was a blast. Thank you. So much fun. Uh, I will make sure to throw up, all of the uh, the links where people can find you. I'll put the link to the show up in the show notes as well. Dave, do you have like social media stuff that you want me to connect to? Uh, I don't do a lot of social media right okay. now because I'm I'm too busy gaming and you know yeah, doing, doing Dave stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No worries. <laughs> well, we do have uh, Let's Talk Turkeys 
uh, all over. You can find our show, first of all, wherever you find quality podcasts, we're everywhere. And then as far as links, we've got an Instagram, we've got a Twitter at Gobble Podcast. You can hit us up there and we've got Facebook pages. So come chat with us. We love to talk bad movies. As we all do, as hopefully the majority of my audience likes to do, because we've got some bad ones lined up still there. I have such a long wish list of movies where it's like, these are really the ones that I want to do. And like a couple of them have uh, gotten checked off the list. But I think I need to just like put it out there and be like, if you love any of these horrible movies, please talk to me and uh, we'll set something up in the future. But again, thank you so much for your time. I really, truly appreciate it. And uh, have a great day, both of you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you once again to Movie Miss and Drive-In Dave, and make sure to check out their show, Let's Talk Turkeys, and maybe keep your eyes peeled for a future guest spot from yours truly. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. I'd love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love, and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram, and that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies. 